When we take a stand as a church, we do it with grace, and we do it with tenderness, and we do it as pleasantly as we can. But nonetheless, we take a stand and say, stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me please to Revelation chapter 10. Most of you are aware that over the last few weeks we have been steadily working our way through the book of Revelation. And choir, I feel for you this morning, you're about to drop in at the deep end. Uh, there's all sorts of complex language used in Revelation chapter 10, so bear with me please, and let's study God's Word together. You'll find it on page 1923 of the Church Bible, page 1923, Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. It's the entire chapter, and there's a lot of complex imagery and symbolism here, so be patient with me, and we'll get to explore it in a moment or two. And the Apostle John writes these words, "'Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars.' He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hands. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. Now, when you get to the end of chapter 9, you're ready for the final seventh trumpet in chapter 10, but when you get to chapter 10, it repeats the pattern of chapter 7, and so chapter 7 and chapter 10 are both an interlude. 
They're both an anticlimax. You're almost at the point of saying, I can't wait to see what's coming next, and then nothing happens. Or at least it would seem that way. But chapter 10 is much more engaging and exciting than we initially imagine. So let me take you into chapter 10. And the first thing you need to notice is there's a change takes place in terms of the context. Look at verse 1. And John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And then, later on in chapter or verse 4, he says, And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, and what John is telling us is this, that he's no longer in the throne room of God, surrounded by the cherubim and seraphim and archangels and God himself, but John is now back on earth. And as he looks up, he sees an angel descending, and he hears a voice from heaven. And what he sees is this. He sees an angel who straddles both land and sea. He says his raiment, his robe was like a cloud. His hair was like a rainbow. His face was so bright it was like the sun. His legs like fiery pillars. And all John is doing is saying this. He's using symbolic language to say as the archangel of God firmly implants his feet on the earth, pay attention because something spectacular is about to come. Now, it won't come till next Sunday, chapter 11, but bear with me, it's still coming. Because the interlude is quite deliberate on John's behalf. An interlude in Revelation is time to pause and breathe and take stock. And John doesn't simply slip Revelation 10 in there for the sake of filling out the book of Revelation. It has important things to teach us. And the vision that we see there is this, the angel, colossal figure, straddling all of God's created order. His robe is like a cloud. And if you remember back to Exodus, when the people of Israel left Egypt, as you look at it, the map is this way. Egypt is here. They go south and then east back towards the promised land of Israel. And they are led by a cloud which looks like a pillar during the day and fire by night. And that was to represent the presence of God. And so this angel represents the presence of God. But not just his presence, but the promises of God, because his hair is like a rainbow, multicolored. Remember back to Genesis this time, not Exodus, when God gave a covenant promise to Noah, and he said, I will never flood the earth again, and I will give you a sign as a covenant promise. Now, remember what a covenant promise is, and I need you to get this because it's going to come up later in the sermon. And a covenant promise is this. It's a personal, unbreakable bond between God and His people. And God said, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will never abandon you and never leave you, and I will always be there for you. So the original images, or the initial images rather, that you're getting in chapter 10 is this, the presence of God and the promises of God, and you're about to see the purposes of God unfold. That's what's taking place here in all of this symbolism and imagery. Now, 
If you're still with me, I need you to smile and nod. Choir, are they still with me? Are they smiling and nodding? Okay, this is good, because we're about to go a little deeper. So, that's the imagery that you have right there. So, the angel is striking. He's impressive. Some New Testament scholars suggest this is a manifestation of Christ Himself. Most New Testament scholars don't say that, because this angel never receives divine honors. And by that, I mean this. Whenever Christ appears in Revelation, people are worshiping Him. This angel is never worshiped, but He is nonetheless powerful, dominant, representing the purposes of God, the promises of God, and the presence of God. And all of that is happening there. Now, notice what comes next. We're now at verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. That's another reason we don't believe it's Christ, rather an angel himself, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it. And then he said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now, what is he talking about? The mystery of God will be accomplished. Now, remember the cardinal principle when understanding Revelation, John is writing about what was, what is, and what is still to come. And I think a helpful way to understand this passage is this, that the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants and his prophets. Now, what I'm reading there is this, the purposes and eternal redemptive plans of God came to fruition at the moment of Christ's birth. So, His birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection issue in what theologians and what New Testament scholars call the end times. Now, using that phrase, end times, doesn't mean the last times, but it means this, the period of history when Christ accomplished the eternal decrees of God by going to the cross for us were completed at that point. That's why He said, it is finished. That's why we use the language when He goes up into heaven, He sits down at the right hand of the Father Almighty, which we read, of course, in the Apostles' Creed. And so, as John is writing, he's looking back to that moment when the purposes of God came to fruition, and all of the centuries since, and all of the years still to come, are the outworking of all that God has accomplished. That's what's going on here. And there is no more delay. That's what's happening here. So, all of that is wrapped up in here. And then at verse 8, and this is where I really need your attention, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. And he said, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. 
And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as the honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Now, what is happening there? Well, let me suggest this. And the first thing I want to suggest is, visually, we have an anticlimax. And we have an anticlimax for this reason. We know that the seventh trumpet is about to go off. We know that we have this impressive, dominant, colossal figure who is straddling all of God's created order. And we expect that when John is said, is told, go to the angel, that the angel will have a huge sword of justice and righteousness and judgment. And if he doesn't have a sword with all of the imagery, maybe he has a royal scepter that talks of majesty and grandeur, or perhaps even a bishop's crook, which signifies the office that he holds and the care and concern of a shepherd over his sheep. But it's none of these things. In fact, John describes it as a little booklet. And given the size and enormity of this angel, what John is describing is what? The angel is holding the Scriptures, the very Word of God. And what is happening here is this, that the Word of God gives life, and it is sweet to us. And when we get it into our mind, it stimulates our thinking. It moves us towards glory and honor and worship and praise and adoration. But what John is saying is this, it was never designed simply to be in the mind, but it was designed to be consumed, to be digested, to be fed upon. It was intentionally designed to impact the heart and the soul as well as the mind. It was designed to be lived out every day in the messiness of our lives. When we have busy days and overscheduled days and days when things go wrong, then we can fall back on the promises and the words of God Himself. Now, all of that is positive. So, where does this sourness come from? Well, let me suggest this. Most of us, I think, will identify with this, that on a Sunday morning when we've opened up and studied the Word of God together, it has been for us God's very life, and it has encouraged us and strengthened us. But on Monday morning, when we get into the busyness of another day, when our schedules get become complicated, when there are so many things that need our attention, we take His Word, and slowly but surely, as we get further and further into the week, it moves towards being marginalized and minimized. And in our minds, we agree that the Scriptures ought to impact our lives, and so we say it ought to, and it should, and it could, but quite honestly, I'm just so busy with the daily distractions and all of the things that's going on in my life and the messiness of life, somehow it's left over here. And when that takes place, the Holy Spirit often gets our attention 
attention and says, now remember who you are, and remember how much I love you, and who you have been called to be, and remember the standards of the Christian life. And when you go about living your life in your own strength, and marginalizing and minimizing and leaving over there the Scriptures on the basis of could be and should be and ought, and when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, that becomes an unpleasant experience. It becomes deeply convicting. It becomes distasteful because you know what you should be doing and yet do what you want to do. That's what's going on here. So when John says you eat it, you internalize it, and it will turn sour in your mouth if you don't apply it and live by it, that's the point he's making. Let me pause for a second there and see if I can illustrate this a little further. And I want to become personal, and I want to become challenging, and I want to become very specific. So let me use an illustration and paint a picture for you. Imagine, and we looked at this about a year ago, but it's apropos to this morning. Imagine you are a young lady you are 23 years old. You've graduated for a couple of years. You're now in business, and your business is going well. You have been dating the same guy for about 11, 12 months, almost a year. And you phone up your best friend, and you say to her, I've got some exciting news. Any chance we can meet tomorrow morning for a cup of coffee? Let's imagine tomorrow morning's a Saturday. Your friend says, yeah, sure. And so you meet around 10.30, and you sit down, and you say to her, well, what's your news? What have you got to tell me? This sounds very mysterious and intriguing. You phone me up and ask me for coffee. And she says, well, I, I do have some news, and I need your advice. You know, I've been dating Tom for almost a year, and I think I'm falling in love. And earlier this week, Tom asked me to do something, and I'm not quite sure how to respond. He told me that he loves me. He thinks I may be the one, and he wants us to live together and try it out and see how it goes. How do you respond to your best friend? What advice do you give her? How do you begin to steer that conversation in a way that's healthy and helpful for her? And Tom is saying all the right things. But let me also paint for you a picture of what Tom is not saying. Because what Tom is doing at this point is this. Tom is painting a relationship based on a consumer mentality. Now, let me explain that, because that's not easy to grasp. A consumer mentality means this. I need companionship. I need intimacy. I need a home. I need you in my life. That's a consumer mindset. 
And the other part of the consumer mindset is this, that as long as you are meeting all those needs, I am going to be here with you. But when the day comes and you are no longer meeting all of these needs, I am going to say thank you, it was fun, and walk away. I need companionship, I need intimacy, I need to build a home, I need folks to see us as a couple. And what he's not saying is this. Tom is not saying, I'm in this for the long haul, and I want you to marry me, richer for poorer, better for worse, in sickness and in health. And it's not my needs I'm concerned about, but I want to give myself to you, period. That's commitment. This is convenience. And there is a world of a difference between convenience and commitment. And the couple in this relationship, and they may never articulate it this way, but they will know even in their most intimate moments when they take each other by the hand and they look each other in the eye, there is an inherent contradiction in that relationship because it's not long-term, and either could walk away any minute. And those of us who have been married for 15 and 20 and 25 and 30 and 40 years and more know this, that when you give yourself to marriage, when you give yourself exclusively to one individual, your love becomes sweeter and deeper, and the commitment is much more than the physical satisfaction. It's much more than being known as a couple. It's much more than introducing them to family and friends. It's about love and commitment, and this person is to me the greatest person in all the world, and it becomes sweeter and deeper, as we have said. Culture will tell you that this is good and healthy, and the celebrities we see on big screens and on Facebook and on so many so many other areas in our culture and our society will tell you this is where you need to be. But what the media doesn't do is follow up with them when it becomes a disaster, and it's left to pastors to pick up the pieces of broken, debilitated, wounded people who say, I thought he was going to love me forever. And there was an inherent weakness right there. Folks, please understand me when I'm saying this. Christians do not take marriage lightly. We believe it is the most sacred of relationships between husband and wife, man and woman. We don't take it seriously just to be mean. We take it seriously not to be politically correct or politically incorrect. We take it seriously because the Scriptures teach us that it's God's greatest plan for humanity, and it is the best place to raise a family when you are committed to it for the long haul. And hear me when I say this. Culture tells us that two mummies are fine and two daddies are fine, but experience tells us mommies don't make good daddies and daddies don't make good mommies. But faithful, stable 
families where children are loved and cared for have the best chance when there is a mom and a dad committed to each other and in a loving relationship for the long haul. And that's why, as a church, we are committed to chastity and singleness because it cannot be shared with anyone else other than a husband and wife and faithfulness in marriage. Now, culture and society has shifted in the last 50 years, and they will tell you you are odd. They will tell you you are strange. But hear this, those kind of comments are more to do with culture's spiritual poverty than Christians' oddity. Amen? Amen. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. That's why John says, take it, digest it, get it into your system, and live it out day by day by day. So, when we find ourselves taking it and relegating it to ought and should and maybe, we need to take it back, apply it to our lives, apply it to our lives daily that's what it means to be men and women of God, committed to holiness, committed to purity, in marriage committed to honesty and transparency, and enough of the inherent contradiction, and to live out the Christian life in the messiness of life every day. And when we take a stand as a church, we do it with grace, and we do it with tenderness, and we do it as pleasantly as we can, but nonetheless we take a stand and say, stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this terrific passage in Revelations chapter 10. Help us please this week to be men and women of Christ standing for all we have talked about this morning. Enable us, please, by Your grace to be strong in heart and mind and soul. Help us to digest and feed upon Your Word. Nourish it to us, please, we pray. Father, take us into this new week rejoicing and strengthened, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Pres by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.